Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, where each episode explores how to integrate timeless wisdom into everyday life. We engage in meaningful conversations with leading thinkers in philosophy, leadership, theology, and everything in between. We leave no stone unturned in search of wisdom. To learn more, visit perennialleader.com. Welcome and thank you for listening. On today's episode, my guest is Lodro Rinsler. Lodro is the author of seven books, including The Buddha Walks Into a Bar. And today we discuss his new book, Take Back Your Mind, Buddhist Advice for Anxious Times. In the conversation, Lodro and I discuss navigating anxiety and stress, finding wisdom, cultivating compassion, meditation in daily life, and much more. You can learn more about Lodro and his work at lodrorinsler.com. Now, please welcome the wise and gracious Lodro Rinsler. Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, Melodro. Thank you for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. I've really enjoyed uh, the new book, Take Back Your Mind. So I wanted to maybe start with the motivation behind putting out the book. And if you could talk a little bit about where the proceeds are going. Oh, sure. So uh, this new book is called Take Back Your Mind, Buddhist Advice for Anxious Times. And it's really I mean, if we aren't thinking of these as anxious times, I don't know what will be. Um, you know, it is, it's a book that came, I started writing it before the pandemic and then I sped up the process during it and released it during our current situation. So it came out in February. And um, yeah, I mean, this book is uh, first and foremost, just an offering from me, someone who had struggled with anxiety for quite some time, but also someone who grew up in a Buddhist household and was given tools to work with my mind. And those tools, when we actually do work with them, it turns out they're actually very effective. So it's sort of a roundup of all of the various sort of not just meditation techniques, but also on the spot techniques that are helpful for us to do exactly that, take back the mind from anxiety. And the proceeds, is, uh, thank you for mentioning that, because I always forget to mention that um, when people buy the book, the money goes directly to two organizations that I really uh, one to support. One is Feeding America, which is a network of food banks for people who have been struggling during this time to actually have access to good, healthy food. And then um, the Loveland Foundation, which is therapeutic support for um, black and brown women specifically. And uh, they connect them with really wonderful resources that can help during uh, manage their own anxiety and their own issues during these times as well. Well, I love that. And I appreciate you sharing if we could maybe go back a few decades, you you mentioned this being raised here in the West, but being you know having parents that were both the experienced Buddhist practitioners. I'm really curious about that. What was what was that like? Could you share a bit of a bit of that? Yeah, I'm happy to. So uh, my parents started practicing in Tibetan Buddhist traditions from. They're in their late 20s, I would suppose. And uh, by the time I came around, it was already firmly established in the household. So it was very much just something that we did in the same way that I'm sure, you know, people said, oh, my parents made their bed every day. So I made my bed. <laughs> it was just sort of a thing that happened. Um, 
And yes, it, it was definitely, you know, never foisted upon me, but it was something that I picked up upon in, when I was about six years old. And I started doing on my own. And from there, I started doing more like weekend retreats and things like that when I was 11. And then started doing longer retreats when I was 17. It just started to take root at that point in my sort of later teens um, where I went all in in the way that maybe 17-year-olds, 18-year-olds could become obsessed with something and would spend all of my free time either practicing or studying or going on retreats and things like that. And when I was 18 years old and at university, I started a little meditation group just assuming in my own naivete that people would show up and they would know how to meditate because I grew up knowing how to meditate. Why wouldn't they know how to do that? And no one did. So I started importing all these teachers from um, you know, the surrounding area that basically at one point or another got sick of it and said, you know, you should just go and train in becoming a meditation teacher. So I was sort of thrown into it at a young age and I wouldn't say I was necessarily good at it at that point, but you know, it was certainly something that I took on and has slowly started to refine over the last 20 years now. As you reflect back on your upbringing, is there anything that that comes to mind? I'm as a parent myself, I'm I'm just fascinated by this idea. Was there you know still some some Buddhist helicopter parenting going on? What what was it what was it like? Yeah, it's a good question. So the I mean, I think, you know, when we say that someone's a meditator, that they're a Buddhist or something, it's someone who's committed to working with their mind. And that doesn't mean that they are perfect at it. And that doesn't mean that they never have anxiety, for example, or any of it. I think it's just someone who's like, oh, I noticed that, you know, this is, I'm sure for many parents, like this is a hot topic where it's like, oh, I want the best for this being. And this being's trying to run and play in traffic or whatever kids are doing, you know? So it's, it's like, of course, you know, stress and anxiety will arise in this relationship. But I think what we do with that, what we choose to do in terms of our mental energy is really important. And it's actually not a bad example of the many things I talk about in that book where it's like, you know, whether it's being, you know, letting ourselves acknowledge the immediate thing that needs to happen with the kid or spend all of our waking hours saying, well, what if this happens with them? What if that happens? That's the choice that we have to make. One is actually based in reality. Oh, there's something that this kid is need, needs from me in this moment. And the other is I'm choosing to spiral out into a bazillion what-if scenarios. 99.99% of them are not going to happen. And I mean, for, you know, that's one example. But for anyone who's ever had like rehearsed a conversation that they're going to have with a work colleague or you know someone that they find difficult, you keep playing out the same, well, if they say this, I'll say that in response. You know, it never in my life have I ever done that. And this this conversation went in the way that I thought it would. Right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like it's never actually been useful mental energy. So at some point we have to say, well, where is this useful and where is this not? And I think that's part of what it's like to actually just get to know your mind better. You start to see that line. Well, this is a useful thing in terms of quote unquote worrying about the kid, or this is a time that I'm just driving myself a little bonkers with no actual basis in reality. Mm. I was hoping maybe you could speak a bit to the um to the cover of the book this image for the for the listeners an image of a boat inside a, a drinking glass with some some big waves. Yeah, um this was a really collaborative book. I decided actually to go through uh self-publishing for the first time. This is my 7th book and 
um, you know, normally when you work with the publisher, you submit them a text and then a year, if you're lucky later, it comes out. And I'm even seeing friends who are going through this now with supply chain issues where it's even worse. So because we wanted to get this out in such a timely way, I was able to do it myself, so to speak, and collaborated with a wonderful cover designer, um, Jessica Morfu. And um, she proposed any number of really wonderful options. But this one really resonated because there is some sense of like, okay, so we've got this glass, so it's a contained situation and the waters are choppy and we're trying to ride the waves. But that's the thing, you know, I actually, God, I hate that I'm doing this, but I saw a wonderful meme the other day, which was just an image of something really overwhelming and taking up the entire space of a panel saying what it feels like right now. And then it's, you know, a third of the size in the next panel. It says what it feels like in a few months from now. And that's this tiny little bubble in the final one. It's like what it feels in a year. And that's basically what this is like. So the anxiety often feels like, oh my God, this stormy situation, it's horrible, it's taking over. And it's just within the confined space of what, today, this week, right? So if I ask someone, for example, what was stressing you out at the time that you're listening to this, whatever time it is, you know, one year ago to the day, I can't imagine that a single person listening to this would actually know because it's changed. And that's the nature of these things. Like, it's not that we somehow magically eliminate stress. Stressful situations will continue to come up, but that we ourselves, what was stressing us out then is no longer necessarily what's stressing us out now. Even if it is, to go back to your example, a kid is some sense of like, well, the thing that was stressing me about, out about my kid a year ago is completely different. They're a completely different human being. So it's the same thing with everything, with our work situation, it changes, with our home situation. Not that everything always goes our way, but that the mental energy that goes into um you know, perpetuating that storm, it's not actually helpful to us. I think that's what we have to start to see. I love it. Maybe we could begin with um, defining a, a couple terms. How about we start with anxiety? Yeah. And I don't know if you were going to go to um, stress as well, but maybe I want to just sort of do a uh, sort of delineation between these two terms, because I think they're often equated. Great. Particularly in the circles that I run in around meditation, people are like, stress, anxiety. Stress is something that is just even a physiological response. You know, when you get that email from someone saying, hey, we need to talk, you might go, oh my God, what do we need to talk about? And our fight, flight, freeze response mode is triggered. And just from an evolutionary perspective, we're like, what am I going to do? There's like a big energy in the body um, that comes out. And that's fine. But then to use that example, since I, I threw it out there, I have a choice and I could either continue to hold myself in a state of stress about it and tell myself lots and lots of stories. Well, I bet it's going to be about this thing. Oh my God, they probably think about this, or maybe they think this about me and they want to talk about that. And that is where I start to hold myself in a state of anxiety. Stress, part of life, normal. Anxiety, this is where the choice actually happens. Because I could also acknowledge those stories, come back to the present moment, and leave that behind. Something else might stress me out later on, you know, the cat goes missing or something like that. That's stressful. No denying it. But then it's like, how many stories am I sharing on top versus how much am I being present to the reality of the situation and actually learning how to respond skillfully to it? When you think about stress and anxiety, I guess to stick with anxiety, 
Is there anything that comes comes to mind around what's maybe underneath it for for most people, or maybe a couple things that might be common causes of that chronic anxiety? Yeah, I mean, I do think we live in increasingly anxious times, and you know that's sort of why this book, why now, the pandemic obviously heightened it for many people, but there were a lot of underlying things that were happening anyway. I read a statistic. I think I put that in the book, but there was some, oh gosh, I shouldn't even say, it was some ridiculous number. I don't want to remember off the top of my head, but like 40 million people that were saying that they would suffer from some form of anxiety. And even saying that now feels low. Um, Because if you yourself do not suffer from anxiety, I am pretty confident that a loved one in your near proximity does. Like this is just a part of life. And the story I share in the book is, you know, actually going out to dinner with a handful of people and a loved one sort of shutting down when the conversation went towards politics. And I took them aside later on and sort of just checked in. And they said, you know, it's just the anxiety level that I'm living with right now. I need to watch a half hour of animal videos just to return to some semblance of normal. And it's like, I didn't even know this person was going through it until we had that conversation. And obviously animal videos compared to what many people do, like drink or pop a pill or whatever, it's not a bad option, but it's still that sense of like, I don't know how to relate to my mind. So I'm going to go do this. And um, you asked about like sort of the causes, conditions. Yes. I mean, I do think the political divisiveness that we are only heightening these days is is a big one. And I also think that... uh, you know, just some of the societal issues that we're waking up to. It's a good thing that we're waking up to rampant racism and social injustice, but it's also very painful for many people who did not previously look at these things. And it's, of course, been extremely painful for people who have been subjected to this over time. And that, of course, causes deep stress in the body. And then, of course, it can also lead to anxiety. And then there's just, you know, I always think about my father coming home from the long day at work at five o'clock and hanging up his coat and having an evening. And if someone needed him, some sort of emergency at work, they would call the landline and he would either pick it up or not, and they would go from there. But these days it's like, there is no separation for many of us in the pandemic between work and home because it's sort of like, oh, I walk from the couch to the to the bed or something like that if I'm making a distinction. And also even before the pandemic, we have this sort of sense of like always needing to be on, you know, that one's boss can reach out through text, email, um, you know, social media call, anything. And your phone is on you and you're going to actually respond to it because that is what's being asked to you. And we haven't, you know, sort of come up, caught up from a human perspective with some of the technology that we now have. Like no one has actually said, no, the common polite thing is that we never email after seven o'clock at night as a society or something like that. So, you know, I don't even know if we could do such a thing given that so many of us work with people from all different time zones and so on and so forth. But you understand the idea that like there is some sense of us always needing to be on. The news cycle also used to be a thing that you would pick up the newspaper in the morning and read the news. And now, of course, you can, you know, go through uh, various internet rabbit holes right before bed. Um, No matter what time you go to bed, there's a 24-hour news cycle. So it's a sense of like, there's always on. We're always on. The world's always on. There's always more to be done. And there isn't the same sense of spaciousness and relaxation that used to exist just by the sheer virtue of where we were with technology. So I do think that that's a part of it too. So there's any number of factors. 
you add in the fact that, you know, people have family stress, they have financial stress, all sorts of things um, that just seem to be happening. Yeah, like this is a part of life and it's also going to be continue to be extremely hard for us unless we actually learn to work with our minds. Any thoughts around someone becoming aware that they're experiencing anxiety or maybe some sort of synonym? That's an interesting thing because there are times when people sort of say, oh, well, this is who I am. I'm an anxious person. And they over-identify in this regard. And Mm. I mean, the good news for anyone who's curious is that, no, that's not true. You're not an anxious person. Anxiety happens to be something that's going on for you, but that is not exactly who you are. It's sort of like if you've ever been angry and then you say, I'm an angry person. You're like, no, you were angry at one point. Then you got over it or something was resolved and you moved on with life and then you felt joy. And then it's like, we are not just one thing. And I think for whatever reason, anxiety has sort of snuck in alongside those other emotions and said, well, no, I get to be a dominant thing. And um, that's not true. I mean, it's the distinction. There's many practices in this book, but it's wonderful. That actually allows us to recognize some of the strong emotions that might be present for us, like anxiety, to actually allow some space to feel it and for it to express itself, to investigate it. And then there's this wonderful step where we actually say, okay, and now I let it go. Mm. Um, My wife wrote a book called Teen Cake with Demons, which is uh, a lovely book. And she's a meditation teacher herself. And in it, she gives this example of, you know, like a demon coming and knocking on the door and saying, I'm here. And what many of us do is try and hide out from it. And that's what we often do with anxiety. You know, we try and hide from it. We try and say, no, go away. Um, But the sort of Buddhist logic of what we could do and should do is to open the door and to invite it in and to sit down and have tea with it. And we look at it, we get curious about it, like any other visitor who comes to our home. And then at some point, tea is done and it's time for it to go. And it's more able to do so having been seen. So the same can be said for some of the strong emotions that we feel, including anxiety, which is that sense of like, okay, we invite it and we acknowledge it, we sit with it, we look at it, we get to know it. And then through that process, we say, and now I can let it go that much more easily. You know, what might be that lowest scaling, that just easiest entry point into taking back your mind and and working with anxiety? Yeah. I mean, I'll give you sort of the big public answer and then I'll give you the real answer. So the big public answer is, well, anyone can take three deep breaths in through their nose, out through their mouth. And that does calm the nervous system. And that can be extremely helpful when we get that sort of irksome email and we start to find ourselves spiraling that we can essentially hit reset on the nervous system by doing those sorts of deep breaths. Now, the thing about that The real answer is that's essentially us treating the symptoms, but not the disease. So that's fine. And I think that's what a lot of people like to do. Okay, well, I don't know about meditation and nothing against this this particular technique, but like I like to go to a sound bath or I like to get a massage. And that's wonderful. And that sort of can relax the body. And then you walk out and your mind is still your mind and it still ramps up to 100 miles per hour. It's just maybe it didn't do it during the massage or the sound bath or whatever. Maybe you had a couple hours reprieve before it started to ramp up again. So that's, in my mind, like taking three deep breaths is actually very helpful in cutting through. But then what do we do? Like we actually have to, like if we don't know how to work with the mind, then it's just sort of, you know, putting a Band-Aid on a big open wound. And that's why I think the sort of basic, I mean, we hear about mindfulness meditation all the time these days, but that is 
a practice that's been around for thousands of years. And there's a reason that we still do it. And that that's where so much of the meditative research is focused and all sorts of things. It's because it is extremely effective in treating the actual disease and the disease in this case being anxiety. So what we do in mindfulness meditation, mindfulness of the breath in particular, is that we would take an uplifted but relaxed posture. We would notice how we're breathing. Even as you're sitting here listening, you're breathing. It's something that's already happening. We don't have to do something. We don't have to create something. We don't have to fix anything. We just relax with the breath. And then, this is an important step, when we notice that we have drifted off into thoughts about our financial situation, our home, our family, whatever, we come back to the breath. We just sort of say, okay, that's not what I'm doing right now. I come back to the breath. But that's actually where we start to retrain and rewire the brain to learn to be present. And that's the huge shift. Because if we can actually retrain the brain not to chase after every anxiety-producing thought while we're meditating, then that means in the other 23-plus hours that we're going about our day, we are also doing that. We're learning to do that more skillfully so that when that email lands, we don't immediately spiral. We say, oh, I don't have to. I can come back to the body. I can come back to the present. I don't have to indulge every thought that emerges. So I think that's, you know, if we're talking about scaling, even there, there can be that, which is maybe we start with five minutes a day of just that. Maybe we do 10 minutes a day. And then gradually people can do more. But that's a good entry point for most people. And I think a lot of people say, well, I don't know if I have 10 minutes a day. We have 10 minutes a day. We spend that on social media or other places. I know people who get up earlier than their kids and they go sneak off into another room and their kids wake up and they run to the room and they tackle them and they're still finding ways to actually do 10 minutes of meditation. So I, I do think that, you know, I've seen it all at this point, the last 20 years of practicing and teaching this. And it's not something that uh, like 10 minutes a day is actually pretty doable. We just sort of have to commit to doing it. The question that, um, or the phrase that I guess you've said initially in the conversation, and maybe a couple of times is, is this helpful? I was curious for you as a, the experienced meditator, you know, off the cushion in everyday life. How often is that question maybe coming up in the in the background for you? Is this helpful or or useful? Yeah, I, I think you know it used to be a lot more, and then maybe I'm just going through a stage where there aren't as many stressful things, or maybe my mind is just sort of adjusted. I've always joked, by the way, that. Some people can just meditate or hear something once and then they sort of get the teaching. Some people need to contemplate it. Some people might even need to teach it. I need to write an entire book before I'm like, yes, I actually really know this. <laughs> um, so maybe, you know, at the other end of this book, I maybe it's just I've worked my mind differently. But I do think that this is perhaps one of the more helpful things that is in the book, which is that sense of cutting through the habitual thought. So there's an old story Um and actually, it's in the book, 10% Happier. So a friend and colleague, Dan Harris, uh, wrote a book that is really lovely, good, accessible book for meditation. And in it, he shares, he's coming back from, he's finishing up a meditation retreat. And the teacher says, hey, listen, I know you're going to want to think about all the things that you've got to do when you leave here, but just enjoy these last few bits of this retreat. And he shoots his hand up and he goes, well, that's all fine and good. But I, I mean, there are things I need to do. I need to line up a car. I need to get to the airport. And the teacher says, fair enough. Here's the thing. After, you know, you think about that, you plan that you're done. After the 50th time where mentally you're running through the airport, you're dropping your bags off, you're timing it all. 
but physically you're sitting here, you might want to ask yourself, is this useful? And the answer, of course, in that moment, if I asked myself and I were in the, that person's shoes, I would say, no, that's not actually useful. So it's the same thing where we could, I'll go back to the conversation that we have with other people in our head. It's like, oh, you know, after the 50th time of playing out how this could possibly go, is this useful? Or my personal version of it has always been, is this helpful? And in both cases, whatever question you choose to answer, the answer is probably going to come back no, at which point it's that much easier to give up the ghost of that particular thing and come back into the present moment. But sort of like even just getting gently inquisitive about it can actually go a long way in terms of letting it go. I'm curious for you to to go back to maybe the the image on on the cover of these waves as you're putting that into practice, and, and obviously you've you've done this many times, and you're you're very experienced. But you know, can we get to a point where we ask that question: Is this helpful? In the waves, calm down. You know, when we come to the realization that this is not not helpful, is that any sort of visual that connects with you? Yeah, I mean, here's the thing with waves. If we're if we're standing with our ankles in the ocean, there's going to be waves. And some of them are going to come up and they're going to, you know, lick our heels and some are going to come crashing down on us and they might upset us and we might get pulled out to sea a little bit and have to figure out how to dive into them as opposed to kicking, fighting, screaming, at which point we get pulled out further by them. But that's waves. Like yeah. I think the thing about stress reduction and all those sorts of terms I sort of buck up against is it sounds like we can change our life to the point that there's no stressful situation, or in this case, there's no waves. And that's not true. There's always going to be waves. It's just how much do we actually learn how to address them as they come up? And that's the interesting thing for me, where I think it's like, I just very briefly gave two examples. If a giant, you know, some waves come up crashing, you could be the sort of person that's deeply scared of water hitting your ankles, and that's really horrible for you in which case it's going to be a very difficult life. So actually to work with your mind and say, this is just part of life. I can actually work with it. It's very good. But if a giant wave comes crashing down on you, a job loss, a big breakup, a death, that's the moment we get pulled out a little bit. It's hard not to. So mm-hmm. what do we do? And as I said, we can either you know fight and scream. This happened to me when I was a kid and I tried, I didn't know what to do. And I sort of flailed about. And I got pulled out further. Mm-hmm. Someone had to come in and get me, you know, thank goodness. Um, and that's what I think many of us experience. And it's not helpful. So why are we continuing to do that? Why do we do that every time a wave comes crashing on? The meditative point of view would be that we would sort of dive in. We see it coming and we sort of lean into it. And ideally, we even come out the other end feeling somewhat refreshed. And that would be really profound to use anxiety and stressful situations, not as a chance to lose days of sleep, but as an actual practice opportunity, a sense of, oh, this could actually help me become more wakeful. This can actually help me become more patient or generous or whatever it might be. That would be a very big shift in view. But if we can achieve that, then you know we start to really shift our life in a different direction. It's very hard. I'm not, I'm not saying this is easy stuff. But I do think it's a better way to live. Mm. You write in the book that we don't practice meditation to become better meditators. We practice to become familiar with our innate goodness, to connect with the goodness of others, and to realize the goodness of society. Um, I I love that. And I'm, I'm curious, how far into your practice did you kind of come to this realization of 
the practice is about you know integrating it into into everyday life and, and things like that yeah i mean that was always an interesting one from for me from early on maybe my <clears throat> teens 20s where i realized that this was not first of all, it's not a fun hobby for anyone who's curious about it. It is not just like a fun thing to sit around and do, right? It's, it's challenging. It's us looking at our own mind. There's some real bravery that goes into that aspect. And at the same time is really good for us because we start to notice that it shows up in other areas of our life and it helps us in those areas. It helps us become kinder to ourselves and others. It helps us actually show up and be more present and more compassionate. So with that in mind, we say, okay, how far can I stretch this? How much can I apply these tools of mindfulness and compassion to my daily life? And that's really what actually gave birth to my first book, which is, I mean, came out January 2012. So we're coming up on the 10-year anniversary of that thing that I wrote when I was in my 20s, which is, yeah, it's like a whole other human being that wrote this thing because it's been so long. But um, the nature of it is, I'll, I'll stand by the teachings here, that it is a sense of, can we integrate the principles that come out of the practice of meditation into everything, including going out with friends, including our dating or romantic life, including the way that we raise our kids, all of these sorts of things can be really important. It's, it's not like we set the meditation on one side and then our spirit, our rest of our life on the other. It's like, how do we actually live a spiritual life? They should be entirely integrated. So it's been a long time passion of mine. Um, but I think to answer your question, it probably does. It probably did stem from that early period my teens, twenties, when I was in college and all of a sudden on my own and, you know, trying to figure out how to practice every morning, but then also being hungover because I was going out too much and all of that. It, it was just sort of like, okay, I didn't find anything actually. I mean, the reason the Buddha walks into a bar came out, you know, in my twenties was I didn't see anyone talking about this integration in the way that I was currently experiencing it. So I, I was like, I, if no one's going to talk about it, maybe I can open the conversation at least. And that's how that got going. And then I honestly view the other books I've written in a similar vein of like, why aren't we all talking about anxiety? If it's happening to so many people, how come we don't sit around at the dinner table and say, how do you combat it? What do you find helpful? Mm. Why is that? You, why is that taboo? Yeah. Do you see it as a, just kind of a universal human condition? Maybe we all at times are experiencing anxiety. I do. I, I mean, I do. Th I don't think that's innate to who we are. I think as a society, we are, there's a little bit of a push pull that happens where we say, you know, like, okay, I've got to be productive. And, you know, then we start comparing ourselves to other people. And all of a sudden it becomes a situation where we're like, okay, here's the standard of, that I'm now miscellaneously holding my life toward. <laughs> and um, if I don't hit every single marker of having a kid at this age, being married at that age, getting that job title at that age, then I am falling behind if something's wrong with me. And all of this is just sort of making us anxious. And yet that's every human being I've ever met. If it's not one of those things, it's the other. Whether if it's not a relationship and being quote unquote on track for that, it's job stuff. If it's not job stuff, it's home and, and you know all sorts of things. It's just there's always going to be another thing that we can do and accomplish. So yes, I mean, there's always going to be opportunities for stress. There's always going to be opportunities for us to hold ourselves in anxiety. And the question is, do we want to do that or not? Hmm. How do you see meditation and loving ourselves? I, I think I heard in a, in a previous interview, you talk about maybe kind of a universal response that we all feel we're bad meditators, maybe. Um, you know, at least initially, but how do you see it 
connecting with loving ourselves and, and maybe anything on anxiety there? Yeah. So, I mean, I think a lot of what we were just talking about is generally referred to as the trap of doubt, this sense of like, well, what if I'm not basically whole, complete good as is? What if I'm basically messed up and that's really who I am and, you know, everything in this book is bullshit and so on and so forth. You know, it's this sense of like, maybe if everyone knew X, Y, and Z about me, then they wouldn't have given me this job. They wouldn't want to be in a relationship with me. They wouldn't want to be my friend. It's really pretty all pervasive for many people, that sense of like, well, I'm not quote unquote worthy of this thing or this life or anything. So my friend and colleague, uh, Megan Watterson, who's an author, we collaborated on a book called How to Love Yourself and Sometimes Other People. And in it, she talks about this voice and she uses a great term, which is the inner bitch radio. You know, the sense of like, we're just being really mean to ourselves in our own head, walking around being like, oh, you shouldn't have said that. You know, you shouldn't have done the X, Y, and Z. Um, And meditation, to answer your question, is actually a way of us tuning the dial and just changing the channel to something that's a little bit kinder. So every time we drift off in meditation, I I sort of uh, talked a little bit about the um, process of acknowledging the thoughts coming back, returning to the breath. This is all um, a beautiful way of thinking about uh, being kinder to ourselves. Like, yes, meditation, mindfulness, it helps us become more present. And at the same time, it also helps us become kinder because when we drift off, we could either say, oh my God, you jerk, why are you like this? Everyone else is sitting here having perfectly normal time. You're the one with all these thoughts and perpetuate that sort of self-aggression. Or we can say, nope, this is a normal thing that happens. I acknowledge it and I come back to the breath. I acknowledge it, I come back to the breath. We relax around it. And that's a moment of actually offering ourselves unconditional friendliness, which is very important. Since this is in search of wisdom, a a standard question we kind of ask most guests is is something around thoughts of, of wisdom, how they might describe wisdom. Is there anything that comes up for you there, Lodro? Sure. So wisdom in my <clears throat> understanding again this is very sort of traditional buddhism um it's our own innate it's not like knowledge that we go out and get it's not this that's something different it's our own sort of intuitive voice we could say that when we get out of our own way and we drop some of the neurotic sort of habitual thinking and tendencies that we have we can relax and we experience a sense of true wisdom, wisdom that actually is with reality for what it is, not as we think it should be, not as it used to be, seeing things clearly for what they are. And that's, you know, not to go all highfalutin on this, but that's enlightenment. That when we talk about like, oh, there's this person who became awake that we call the Buddha, he attained enlightenment, what did he do? He basically was able to see reality for what it was going forward and not get so confused about it because he was so lost in his own head. That's really a big part of it. Like that, that's it. So could we be with reality for what it is? That's a big part of wisdom in the Buddhist tradition. How do you work with maybe desire and, and let go of some of that? 
I think so. There's different translations of what are known as sort of the three root poisons, things that actually turn the mind away from reality. And passion, aggression, ignorance are sort of ways of thinking about it. Sometimes passion is called desire. Sometimes it's called attachment. And I think that's better because it's you know when we look around your room, for example, you look around. I'm doing it here. I see a plant, and I say I like that plant. There's nothing wrong with liking the plant. Maybe I look at a different one that's dying. I say I don't like that. That plant's dying. I don't like that. Right. It's sort of like my mind just goes into one of these things. And then, of course, there's other plants around and things like that that I'm actively ignoring. So it's very quick for us to go, I like this, I don't like this, I ignore it. Or passion, attachment, desire, aggression, anger, you know. Um, and then ig ignorance or prejudice is sometimes how it's talked about, but that's sort of like neutral feeling. So there's that sense of um, we can do that and any number of times in our life, and basically we go through the world doing it all the time. Desire slash passion slash attachment, it's okay for me to say the, like, that I like the plant, but it's when I become obsessed about the plant, and I start telling, like my mind is just full of stories about the plant, here's what I want to have happen with the plant, here's what I don't want to have happen with the plant. That's where I'm starting to make myself, uh, cause myself some pain. I can't just say, okay, I like the plant, I move on with my life. I have to actually fill my head with lots of stories about what I'm going to do about it. And that's where it, things start to cause me a little bit more suffering and pain. A better example, as you said, would be, okay, I want a brand new, uh, this type of car. I don't know cars, cars very well, but this very nice luxury car that I can't afford. Okay. I can like that car, but then I start to tell myself stories of, well, I can't afford it, so I'm a bad person, and you know everything's wrong. And if I had taken this job, if I had only become a doctor like my parents wanted, or whatever it is, that's where I'm causing myself suffering. It's okay for me to say, okay, that's a nice car. It's when I start to make it about me and start to fuel it with all these stories that I'm actually creating more pain for myself in the long run. It seems like a lot of the frustration and anxiety can come from dealing with other people. Maybe we have a desire for people to act in a in a certain way or wanting wanting more control of of other people than is obviously you know reality how do we how do we work with that and maybe have a bit more love for for the people that we deal with in the world yeah it's very hard i mean i think that's we live in very divisive times um you know maybe someone that you love is very much against a vaccine and you're very much for a vaccine or they refuse to wear a mask somewhere and you think that this is a really important thing and all these sorts of things and I'm, I'm not you know purposefully i'm not trying to take sides here although i do have my own proclivities but i do think that ultimately it's these moments where we say oh you're not behaving in the way that i want you to behave and you know there's a um wonderful Thing that the Vietnamese Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh is fond of saying, and he uh, said it in a million different ways, in a million different books. But the short version is, understanding is the other name of love. And if we can't understand, mm. then we can't love. And I do love that because it is a sense of, okay, if my heart is shutting down to this other person, it is likely because I am not seeking to understand where they're coming from. I am not understanding what they're going through. And as a result, I'm telling myself stories that are maybe not uh, based in their reality. 
Mm. So, you know, I think that's always an interesting thing when I notice that I am stuck with someone and I'm like, why aren't you doing this thing? This thing is for, and I'm, I'm using this pandemic example because it is sort of like a lot of times I, there's some righteousness in me. Like, well, this is for your own good, right? This is for your health. This is important. And um, when I notice that, it's like, oh, well, I clearly haven't asked them why they aren't doing the thing, Right. I haven't gotten to understand what they're going through, what their hesitations are, what their, in some cases, deep rooted um, things from decades before that are causing them to think the way that they're thinking. And I think about this, you know, in a very different manner, there's, there's a wonderful interview a million years ago, like three, four, five years ago, um, where representative John Lewis, before he passed, was interviewed on, on being by Krista Tippett. And, she asked him about his experience of being in the civil rights era and the very brutal protests where they would go out in peaceful ways, but then they would be assaulted by police officers, by um, counter protesters, things like that. And he said, you know, and I'm paraphrasing here that they were trained that when someone's beating you, spitting on you, hurting you, that you would look upon them and you would say, how did you get to be this way? Mm -hmm. Who taught you how to hate like this? Because you weren't born this way. You, at one point, you were a baby. You were a baby and you did not hate. How did Who taught you? Was it the schools? Was it your church? Was it something else? Mm. How did you end up in this way? And I, it's just this a beautiful, I mean, I gave a very sort of behind my desk answer of like, oh, you know, like someone that you know that might be pro or anti, the thing that you are pro or anti. Um, here it's like someone's physically beating you and you're saying, oh, I need to understand you in order not to harden my heart and hate you right back. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the beautiful thing where it's a moment of, okay, I need to understand because my love isn't actually reaching you yet. And that's, that's just something that we should be doing regardless of the pandemic, regardless of the political divisiveness that's been coming up, regardless of any number of things. But if we find that we are hard-hearted toward another individual. It's a good opportunity for us to see where am I not yet understanding you? What have I not asked? Where can I become inquisitive about your experience and actually learn to become more curious about who you are as opposed to who I think you are? Hmm. I, I love that example, Lodro. It, it makes me think about past to, to wisdom. It seems like maybe the, the end of that particular path it seems to some similar realizations of, of love for yourself and, and, you know, love for others and kindness and compassion. When you, when you think about that in terms of this book, is there any, you know, one takeaway that, that comes to mind that you'd really hope a reader would, would walk away with to, to embark on, on that path? Yeah, I mean, we sort of referred to this term of basic goodness in the course of our conversation here, but it is the sense that when we get out of our own way, we're meditating, we might just relax for a moment, we might just feel a couple of breaths, we might just be okay in this moment. In that moment, anxiety isn't the predominant thing. We're just here. We're open. Hmm. And in that moment, we say, okay, if I'm not basically messed up, who am I? We say, maybe I'm basically good. Maybe I'm basically whole, complete as is. And to actually, as far as I can see, the entirety of the Buddhist path and many meditation paths in general is that sense of three steps. One, we actually have a moment where we glimpse basic goodness. We actually 
see it for ourselves, that we have that moment of just, oh, I'm okay right now. And it's no longer someone, you know, you're not reading it in this book and you're not having someone give you a lecture about it. It's an experience that you yourself have that you can then start to develop more relationship to, which is the second step that we develop faith or trust or confidence in that experience and start to develop more of a relationship to that feeling of wholeness as opposed to giving so much of our energy over to anxiety. And then the third step is actually that we can start to view the world through that lens, that we actually start to notice, oh, I don't have to view the world only through my neurosis. I can actually view it through this as well. I can actually have that relationship to goodness and see it not just in myself, but also others. Well, that is great. And that's a great way to wrap up, Lodro. How can people learn more about you and your work in the world? Sure. Um, so I always joke that having a name like Lodro Rinsler, you sort of get all the domain names, which is nice. So I'm on uh, my email or my uh, website is lodrorinsler.com. And that's very easy. And I respond to everyone who writes me through that. And um, I'm easily found on Instagram at Lodra Rensler and also Twitter and Facebook, although I, I am less so on those. Well, Lodro, thank you so much for your time. It's, it's really been a pleasure. My absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, Subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. Until next time, be wise and be well.